0: You're listening to the East Point Podcast. For more information about East Point, check out our website at www.epcjacks.com. ...in our faith. And here in Second Thessalonians, we have an interesting passage beginning in verse number 2. Uh, let me take a moment and read it to you. Uh, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. What happened was the Christians who were at Thessalonia, they had uh, thought because of the affliction they were going through that they must have missed the coming of Christ. Paul said, don't be troubled or shaken by this. Now, one of the reasons why we're studying what we're studying, and today... Our topic is God the Son. We know Him as Jesus. And we're going to study that topic today. We're going to study Him today. And one of the reasons we do that is so that we can better recognize the promise of His coming, that we know what He's done for us and we know what He's like. And let me me begin by reminding you of something else that the Bible teaches. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, Whereby we must be saved. So let me put it to you this way. You can have your understanding of baptism wrong or askew, and it really is not going to matter eternally. You can have your understanding even of the rapture somewhat confused, and it's not going to matter a lot eternally. But the fact of the matter is, if you get the teaching of the person of Jesus Christ wrong, it will matter for all of eternity ultimately the dividing factor between what we believe and what cults believe is the person of Jesus Christ who he is and what the Bible says about him now we're going to do something today that I'm going to liken sort of to a sample plate at the restaurant I'm a little scared to give you that illustration (laughs) because you're going to want to run right out and eat something I know but uh, a sample plate is uh, it's one of those times that the restaurant tries to give you just a little bit of all sorts of different things so that maybe, just maybe, you'll try something you normally don't order, so you'll come back and order that. Am I right? And there's always more than enough food there. And so here's what I want to get across to you. This topic today, once again, we find ourselves with more than we can probably digest, more than I can get across to you in the brief period of time that I'm going to attempt to do so. But my hope is that you'll take something on that platter and go home with it and say, you know, I want to look at that deeper. I want to go further into that and understand that more. And uh, I, I hope that that's what you'll do. So let's do what is always wise to do. And that is call on the Holy Spirit to help us. He's our teacher. He's our guide. And so let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we are so very grateful for the privilege we have to gather, Lord, not only in your presence, but around your word and with your people. And God, I just pray that you'd bless today in a very special way, Lord, the, the next few moments we spend together talking about Jesus. I, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will do what I understand his primary, uh, his primary role is, which is to teach us about Jesus. I pray, God, that you'll, you'll bring things to our mind and to our heart, and that you'll open up the scriptures before us. And Lord, do a work in us that you might do a work through us. And I ask God, if there's one here today that has never called on Jesus as their Savior, that today they'd make that decision realizing who he is and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Go with me to John chapter 1. Now, we were there last week. We talked about this a little bit last week. And before I read this to you, I want to give you four words. Basically, this is what we're going to do today. If you have a bulletin, inside your bulletin, you'll find a study sheet. You can jot down all four of these words. And then we're going to go back and we're going to give you uh, something like 75 verses. Okay? Uh, but, uh, uh, possibly we don't know, but there's at least that many in my, in my notes. I, I'll probably skip over a few, uh, get you out in time for the Jaguar preseason game tonight at eight o'clock. But, uh, here are the four words I want to give you. We've divided up the life of Christ to try to give you some sense of a concise presentation of who he is and what he's done. We're going to look at recognition. We're going to talk a little bit about who he is, who he was, uh, and uh, who he will always be. And then we're going to look at redemption, the primary work of Christ. When Jesus came, why did he come? Well, he came to redeem us. What does that mean? And there are a few terms that are involved within that heading as well. And then, of course, we're going to talk about the resurrection. There would be no need to talk about any of this if we didn't have a resurrection. And so we're going to talk about the, the importance of the resurrection. And then, of course, we cannot leave, uh, leave out The return of Jesus. And so we're going to do our best to attempt this. And uh, I may find myself midway telling you that there'll be a part two next Sunday. I don't know for sure, but we'll just see how it goes. All right. Uh, So first of all, let's take a look at the recognition of Jesus. Now to do that, we'll go in John chapter one, verse number one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now let me pause a moment. Our Bible does not say that he was a God. It says he was God, the word. Now, now let me take a moment and say this to you because I know that we have a, a, a vast uh, difference in the, in the backgrounds of all of our people. Some have been saved many, many years, others have just recently come to know Christ, and some of you may still be on the, uh, on the search for what this salvation is that we talk about so much. So let me take a moment and say this to you, that the life of Jesus did not begin in the manger. What we celebrate at the time of Christmas, the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ, that was not the beginning of Jesus. It was the beginning of him as we know the name Jesus and the beginning of his, his humanity. But he existed before that. We call that simply the preexistence of Jesus. Now there are several terms that we're going to look at. Can we bring that PowerPoint slide up for just a minute? I want to introduce them to several of the terms that we're going to talk about uh, throughout this, this, uh, this point. And certainly, pre existence is is going to be one of them. We're going to talk about the deity of Christ and the incarnate word and typology, what all that means. But to recognize Jesus is very important. Now, I have read, and I want to stress that I have read. This is not something that I have uh, done any kind of fact checking on, but I understand there are three recognition issues within religion. Number one Orthodox Jews do not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Number two Protestants do not recognize the Pope as the head of the church. And number three, Baptists do not recognize one another at the liquor store. Now that's what I've... (laughs) I just read it. I don't know it to be fact. I have no experience with that on my own, so some of you can come to me later and tell me if that's... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The... (laughs) the preexistence of Jesus. You need to know Jesus existed before. He was known as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now if you skip down to verse 14 in John chapter 1, we find these words. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now there are a couple of issues that If you are an apologist, and what I mean by that is not somebody who apologizes for what they believe, but the term actually uh, in theological uh, definition means someone who defends their faith. And and so if you are one who tries to defend your faith, you're going to have a couple of terms that come up. One of those is when the Bible says that he was begotten, and we associate that word with fathered, to begin. And then there's the term firstborn mentioned in the scripture about Jesus. And you might encounter somebody who says, well, what does this mean then uh, if he has always been? Because Jesus has all of the attributes of God because he is God. And one of those is he has the attribute of being eternal. He has always been and he will always be just like God the Father. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 10 and verse number 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are what? Many of you know it? One. I and my father are one. And so understand with me today that he is the Yahshua. That's the Hebrew Joshua. That he has always been. That he was the word in the beginning. Now what does it mean in the beginning? In his beginning? No, no. In the beginning that we would associate with. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We talked about that some last week. Jesus is attributed for having been there. Do you remember when the Bible says in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, that God said, let there be light and there was light? The Word of God, inseparable from God, speaks and creation came. Now the Bible tells us that in John chapter 1, if we keep reading, verse number 2, he was in the beginning with God, All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. Wow. So, Jesus is eternal, and Jesus is the Creator. So, we begin to see some of that. Now, what we're talking about is that Jesus is the second person of the divine trinity, Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity has confused many, many people. And one of the reasons that it's somewhat confusing is because, again, we're trying to understand an infinite God with a finite mind. Can I get an uh Uh uh-huh? Last week we talked about one of the attributes of God being that He was transcendent. What that means is there's no analogy and no comparison that can actually be made sufficiently to describe God. And yet we constantly try to do that, do we not? For instance, some people use the egg as an example of what the Trinity is. You have the shell, you have the white, you have the yolk. But no one says eggs, we just say egg. It has three parts. Some have argued from a theological standpoint that the egg does not depict Jesus or God the Father or God the Holy Ghost in the Trinity because they are not three distinct parts. They are one and three persons within Perhaps a better illustration, although once again we are reminded of the transcendence of, of Jesus Christ or transcendence of God and, and the difficulty would be use, the use of the illustration of water in solid, liquid, and gas. We are familiar with it in liquid, in solid it becomes ice and then it becomes a vapor. And so we might look at ice and, and water uh, and, uh, uh, and vapor and say that, that water then might mean uh, or might be a good illustration I like the mathematical equation when I'm talking to people, because I think it helps us with this more than anything. We learned as we were maturing in our education that one plus one plus one equals three, and some of us have never gotten beyond that when it comes to God. We uh, increased our understanding in math to multiplication, and somewhere in our heads we put one times one times one, and then we equaled it out and said it's one, Now that might have taken us a little while initially because we were trying to get out of the mindset of addition. Yet we understood that when we plugged that principle in, it worked. And so we accepted by faith when that teacher told us that. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly how the Trinity is. You must understand that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are one. And when we plug that that into the Scriptures, it all fits and it all makes sense. And so by faith we understand they are one. I got one amen on that. Maybe you were just all together in Trinity form and amen. It sounded like one, but all right. In uh, in Hebrews chapter five and verse number five, the Bible reads this way. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that's a quotation from Psalm chapter two and verse number seven. Now, some people will look at this verse and they will say begotten. Don't you, uh, don't you love the begotten chapters? Can I get an uh-huh? <laughs> I confess to you I struggle with them. I do. I read them, but I struggle with them as I read my Bible through every year. So-and-so begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so. And it's just like crazy, man. And, and, uh, and so you go through. But what it means usually is fathered. But yet if you understand this term as it is mentioned... In the Jewish culture, and, and I came across this, I thought it was interesting. The Greek word is Ganao, and it literally means from a Jewish sense to uh, or, or refers to one who brings others over to his way of life to convert someone. It can mean a transformation. Today I have begotten you. What does that mean? Not that today you have become in existence like you and I. And by the way, as humans, you and I did not exist in heaven. I hear that argument sometimes. People say, well, uh, we were already in heaven and God sent us down. No, no, that's true of Jesus. That's not true of us. We had our beginning here, He didn't have a beginning, He has always been. And so, uh, and so we understand, but the term begotten means more of a transformation. What it means is that today I have transformed you. Today the Word, first, or, or John chapter 1, verse 14, today the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then there is another passage of Scripture, if I could invite your attention to it Colossians chapter 1, and verse number 15 is where we'll begin. Colossians 1 and verse 15 and by the way I'd encourage you we're going to be moving fairly quickly write down at least the reference and then you can go back and look at some of these Uh, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation now that's the new King James I'm reading from I like the rendering of that the firstborn pause Over all creation. Now I did that intentionally. I'll tell you why in a moment. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Let me pause. That's a reference to all of the spirit world. That's a reference even to Lucifer himself. Some will try to tell you, as the Mormons believe, that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. That is incorrect understanding of the Bible. And and Jesus is attributed for having been the creator of all of the angels, the principalities and powers. All these things, or all things, were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And the word consist means they all are brought together in harmony with one another. So God not only put it into place, he sustains it all. Jesus did it all. Now, let me back up a moment and talk to you about that word firstborn. Someone said, well, if you're going to be a firstborn, then there has to be others born. Right? Not if you're dealing with the legal uh, rights of, uh, that are attributed as a firstborn. You see, you've got to understand the Bible in many cases with the text that it was written and the time that it was written in. You have to understand that among the people that this was written to, uh, the Colossians, you need to understand that they understood what it was if you were the firstborn, that you had certain rights, certain privileges, certain control. You can go back to the Old Testament and read the story of Jacob and Esau and how Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright, and you'll understand better what this verse actually means because what it's talking about is not that Jesus was the firstborn. That would be a contradiction to the only begotten son. So it doesn't mean he was the first to be born, among many others. It means that he had the rights and privileges of control of all that was. That he was before all things. It's a reference to his position of authority. Not that he was born, but his position of authority. John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I love that passage of scripture. Jesus was in flesh, incarnate. He was God. He was eternal. He was the creator. He came to this earth in flesh with humanity, clothed in humanity. We'll talk more about why in just a moment. But then it goes on and it says uh, to us, he, he prays. He's about now to finish his mission, to finish his job. Uh, what was his mission? Well, Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we're going to talk about that redemption in just a second. But the Bible tells us that Jesus cried out to his father and said, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was, before the foundation of the world was. We don't often think about that position of Christ. So I encourage you today to think with me what he left behind when he came to earth for you and for me. To consider the glory he asked to be restored to after doing without that when he came to this earth just for us. There are many other things that I could deal with concerning the recognition of Jesus, how people should have recognized Him. But the question is, why did He clothe Himself in humanity? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 gives us the answer to that. Why did He do this? Well, we understand He loved us, but why did He do this? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, listen to this phrase, might taste death for everyone. You can't kill God. So Jesus took on him the form of humanity. He was the God-man. Be very careful with this. He's not God and man. He was the God-man. He was God clothed in humanity. Why did he do that? That he might taste death for every man. Why was that necessary? Well, that's a valid question, and the answer is because the wages of sin is death. And so for Jesus to offer Himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, He died on the cross for us. There are many types of Jesus throughout the Word of God. We could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and say that the coats of the skins that were made right after Adam and Eve had sinned, that that God used to clothe them, to cover them, was a type of Jesus. This may have very well been, and I believe it was, the first time Adam ever saw bloodshed. And it was as a means of covering them up. So we began to understand the teaching that the shedding of blood takes care of and covers over sin. The blood of goats and bulls covers sin, Hebrews tells us, but the blood of Jesus Christ washes it away. There's a difference. There's a difference. As you progress through the Bible, you see Abel's offering, the first of his first fruits, also a type, if you will, of Jesus. You see the offering of Isaac on the altar by Abraham. Do you remember that story? Also a picture of Jesus. We have a couple of pictures of Jesus in that text because Isaac was one, but then there was a ram caught in the thicket. Do you remember that? And the Bible tells us that God spoke to Abraham and he said, take that one and put it in the place of your son. That is what Jesus did for us. He was the lamb of God who was slain. Also depicted in the Passover lamb. Remember the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 when Egypt was held uh, or held in bondage the Israelites and God was setting them free. And God said to his people, take a lamb and slay it place the blood over the doorpost and on the sidepost, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And they were delivered as a result of that. When John in the New Testament, John the Baptist I'm speaking of, the baptizer, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. They should have recognized who he was. All of the Old Testament prophecies pointed to him. Even the way he came in into Jerusalem during that final week the way he rode in on the donkey and the colt and draped between no doubt uh, in a hammock type form Uh, and they should have recognized who he was all of the prophecies said who he was they should have recognized because of where he was born they should have recognized so many things about him and yet the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 he came unto his own and his own received him not Let me enter into the second word with you. The word is redemption. Redemption. When we think about redemption, we've already mentioned some of the thoughts concerning this, but we think about the satisfaction of a sin debt. There's a, a, a huge word in the, uh, in the Bible, uh, propitiation, and a lot of people are unfamiliar with what that is. Some of you may be very familiar with it, but let me take a moment and read it to you, and then I'll talk about it for just a moment. It's a very important thing. That, uh, that it is referring to. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right. We said why was he clothed in humanity? Why did he come? In all things he had to be made like his brethren. He had to go through the experiences in order for him to die and taste death, in order for him to offer himself as a propitiation. What does it mean? It means satisfaction, the satisfaction of a sin debt. Let's go on with that thought for a moment. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of us are familiar with that verse. We've heard that verse. We, We know that. Many of us have memorized it being justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Look at that phrase again. That He is our propitiation by His blood, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. Now what does that mean? If I were to walk up to you today and say to you, uh, would you please write down on a piece of paper all of your debt? Write down how much you owe on your automobile, how much you owe on your, on your house, how much you owe on your, your uh, student debt, how much you owe on, on your uh, belt card, your whatever it is you've got. And, and, and you write it all down because there's someone in the church that would like to relieve you of all of that and pay it all off for you. Now here's the catch, and Jesus talked about this. The more you owe, the more grateful you would be when that is paid off. Jesus talked about the woman in Luke chapter 7 who came to him and loved much because she'd been forgiven much. See, the problem with some of us is we've forgotten what we've been forgiven. We have forgotten that he satisfied our sin debt. Some people say, well, he washed away our sin, and so he just removed our our sin from us. You need to understand something about what Jesus did. He didn't simply wash it away. He paid for it in full. There's a difference. It wasn't just a write-off. He paid for it in full. He's the propitiation, the satisfaction of our sin debt. Then the Bible talks about uh, the word reconciliation, another word that we need to talk about. Now, most of the time we recognize the word reconcile because of marriage situations. And uh, some people are like the couple who were approaching their anniversary. And he said to her, honey, what would you like to do for your anniversary? She said, I'd like to go out and eat. And he said, okay, where do you want to go? And she said, I'd like to go somewhere that I have not been in a very long time. He said, you mean the kitchen? So they were in need of reconciliation. Everybody understands that. The, the idea is that, that when, when sin separated us from God, we had to be brought back into a place with God, reconciled to God, and Jesus took care of that. When Jesus redeems us, when he, when he paid for all of our sin debt, he also reconciled us. Because of the blood of Jesus, we've been reconciled and we can have forgiveness of our sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus did it when he died on the cross. Uh, Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. We we, uh, find the word also in Romans chapter 5. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's verse number six. Verse seven. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a wonderful thing to know that he did this. Now, what did that do? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Then I love verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You could not even approach God were it not for Jesus Christ. You couldn't do it, let alone call on him to be your savior. We think about uh, the death of Jesus and the redemption. We also have to consider what's known as the substitutionary death. That is, God took, the Lord Jesus took our place that cross belonged to us. There's a wonderful thought. I was reading once many years ago in the Gospels, and I was reading about Barabbas being set free. You remember the story, how they uh, they were going to release a prisoner at that time, and Pilate wanted it to be Jesus because he could find no fault in him, but the crowd said, no, release to us Barabbas. I've often wondered if they measured Barabbas and had that cross set for him, and when Jesus then was not released, that cross, the cross that belonged to Barabbas was the cross that Jesus got. And I want to say to you, it didn't belong to Barabbas. It belonged to us. To us. And he took our place. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, here's the thing, and I realize my time is going, and so I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit with you, but here's what you need to understand. You need to understand that Jesus had no sin, that he was sinless. Not only was he sinless in the life that he lived, he was sinless from his birth, unlike any of us. Because the Bible tells us that we inherited the sin of Adam. That Adam, because Adam sinned, we were all born in sin. David the psalmist said that. We were born in sin. Romans chapter 5 paints the picture for us. That death entered upon all men because all have sinned. And through Adam, it was passed on. But here's the deal. The deal is that Jesus was not born of man. The Bible tells us he was born of woman. And in Matthew, uh, the Bible records for us that Joseph was having a hard time with the fact that his wife had never known man, and yet here she was expecting a child. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20 reads this way, "...but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yes, I'm talking about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about the fact that God did something very unique and implanted within Mary the seed from which Jesus would come. That he was born of woman and not of man. And that's a significant understanding because he was without sin, even the inherited sin, that you and I had because we are uh, certainly traced back to Adam. We think about sacrificial love when we think about the redemption of Jesus. The question is not why was he, uh, uh, did, did he take on the form of man? We've talked about that. But why did he die for us? Why did he do it, man? What was the reason? Jesus actually gives us a picture of that in the Gospel of John. This is my commandment, he said in John 15, verse number 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, he said, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, he said. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus said, I love you. That's why I did it. I love you. Of course, we're familiar with John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's difficult for us to comprehend the love of God, that it's an unconditional thing, that you don't earn the love. It's by grace that God just gives it to you. I'm so thankful for that. You can't earn it, but He loves you so much He died on the cross for you. Now that we have talked about His dying on the cross, let's not leave Him there because He didn't stay there. Amen? The Bible tells us they put him in a tomb and they set a guard at the risk of losing their life if anything happened to the body of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that God intervened and there was a wonderful resurrection that took place and the stone was rolled away. Let's make something very clear. The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could come out. It was rolled away so that we could go in and see that he was not there. This thing of the resurrection of Jesus sets apart Every doctrine of every so-called Savior there is, except for Jesus, I'm telling you, it our Savior is alive. Amen. There are some 12 appearances of Jesus after His resurrection, after His death. There are post-resurrection appearances mentioned in the Bible. Many of them are to individuals. Some of them are to small groups. One of them, the Bible records for us, is to a group of more than 500, the Bible tells us. That's difficult for us to fully comprehend, but yes, that's what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 5, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, Paul said, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. You know what Paul said? Paul said, listen, there was a group of 500. By the way, many of them are still living. I said this last week, and I want to reiterate it with you today because I think it's an important point, and that is this. The people who saw the resurrected Savior the majority of them gave their life because of what they believed. They had a firm foundation on the resurrection of Jesus because they had seen him. They were eyewitnesses of him. If it were a hoax, if it were a lie, do you think they would have died the way they died? If the resurrection of Jesus be not the case, if it be not true, how do you explain the lack of fear of death among his people? no fear of death among God's people. Oh, God instilled in you to get out of the way of the coming bus. I know that. But it's not because you fear death. It's because you got good sense. And if you don't have fear of the bus, maybe he don't need you here. That's just... Uh... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Get out of the way. He, he instilled in us... So self-preservation, so we would take care of ourselves and be used for his honor and his glory on this earth. But I want to tell you, you can't threaten God's people with heaven. There's no fear there. The resurrection of Jesus, we could talk about this Endlessly, all of these points would have series that belong strictly to themselves. We think about the victory over death and sin. We think about the fact that Bible, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and if we are found false and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I've heard the theological arguments. One of the, uh, well every now and then you get involved in one of those think tanks, you know what I'm saying? Some of you may have, have done that and I've heard people talk about, you know, which, which was the most uh, vital, the most essential to your salvation. Was it the death on the cross? The shedding of the blood? Was it the resurrection? I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that the, that the acts of the gospel have never been separated and should not be separated. Because without one, none of the other matters. Jesus died on the cross for our sin and the blood was shed. But if he was still in the grave, he has no victory then over death. And we are still in our sins, the Bible says. But because he rose from the dead, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We serve a risen Savior. By this single solitary act, we spoke of the deity of God earlier. Let me just say this to you. By the single solitary act of the resurrection, He proves Himself to be none other than the Son of God. The Bible tells us that in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh... And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You get into an argument with someone, I want to encourage you. You uh, are out and about in the workplace or out and about at school and, and you're trying to defend what you believe. Just ask them a simple question. What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is either the greatest hope of the world or the greatest hoax the world has ever known. And I ask you to show me how in the world the disciples could have possibly gotten in and stolen the body. I ask you how they could have hidden that body for all of these thousands of years. I ask you how that could have happened. I want to tell you it takes more faith to believe that than it does the resurrection. Huh? Victory over sin, victory over death. We serve a risen Savior. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, He is able, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to know you have an intercessor who's alive, a Savior who lives. And then, last of all, with a few moments left, I want to deal with the subject of His return, with His return. I want you to know not only did he die for your sins, not only did he raise from the dead, but he's coming back. And the Bible tells us he's coming back. He showed himself, by the way, according to to Acts chapter 1, the writer of the the book being Luke. He told us uh, that that Jesus had showed himself over a period of 40 days before he ascended. And then in Acts chapter 1, as he is ascending, beginning in verse number 10, we read these words. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And I love this. This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. I have to believe that the angels kind of read their faces. And their faces were one of great dis- disappointment and Maybe tears were streaming down their, eye, down their cheeks as they, as they thought about Jesus leaving them. Remember, they wanted him to set up their kingdom right then. And Jesus said to them back in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you will be also. Make no mistake about it. I'm going to come and get you. I'm coming back, he said. We call that time the rapture. The coming of the Lord can be talked about in two parts. There is the rapture, which we are primed for. According to the word of God, there are some signs that you can look for. They're all here. They're all here. There's nothing that has to happen before the rapture occurs, prophetically speaking. The rapture is that catching away. The rapture is not Jesus returning to the earth, but Jesus returning in the air. And God's people, those who know him, being taken out. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then the rest who are alive and remain shall be caught up with him, changed on the way into our incorruptible bodies. And then there is the second advent. What is that? Well, that's the return of Jesus to the earth, when He sets up His reign from Jerusalem. When will that happen? That will happen, we believe, according to the Scriptures, after the seven years of tribulation on the earth. Keep in mind that the Thessalonians, we studied this a moment ago, we talked about it briefly at the beginning, they thought they had missed the rapture because they were already having such affliction. They were pre-trib, if you will. They were people who thought that Jesus was coming before the horror of the tribulation period. And so Paul said, no, no, don't worry. You'll be able to see it. You'll be able to know it. That It's not yet. It's not happened yet. You didn't miss it. So understand Jesus, understand what he said, understand his promises, and you'll understand all of those things too. And I believe this. One of the reasons we're doing this series is because I want with all my heart, as your pastor, I want you to go out in this place we call the world. And I want you not to be shaken or troubled or blown away by all the junk that goes on and all the stuff you see. I'm telling you, you can get depressed and discouraged watching the news. In 30 minutes, you're ready to go see Jesus. And and I'm telling you, you need to just wait on him, he's got it under control. There is nothing that surprises him. He knows it all. And get to know him. And you'll have a peace and a comfort about everything else that's unfolding in this world. So we read of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. We read of the coming of Jesus in Titus chapter 2. And the Bible tells us that we should be looking for that blessed hope. I'm reminded of the words of that great hymn that so many are no doubt familiar with. Toward the end of the hymn, it simply reads, And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation, and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, My God, how great Thou art. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come to You today.